Okay, amen, amen, right? Well, we're in the midst of a sermon series called A Beginner's Guide to the Kingdom of Heaven, and at the start of Matthew's Gospel, that's the first one in the New Testament, uh, we have really a perfect introduction to a topic he spoke about often. This is Jesus. He spoke spoke about the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Sometimes he used other phrases like the kingdom of God or the kingdom. I mean, Christians still use those phrases today, and if you're new to the faith, you're like, what's up with the kingdom? Why aren't we talking about the kingdom. I thought we lived in America, right? Uh, But Jesus is talking about something very specific that God has been doing among us, establishing in Jesus. And uh, talk of that, talk of the kingdom was often on Jesus's lips, which excited the people who were listening to them because they were anticipating that God was about to do something. They hoped that God would deliver them into a new era. And that is in fact what God was doing. He was establishing a kingdom in Jesus, but it still has yet to be completed. We're kind of in an in-between time where God is still at work and still active, so is Jesus. But we know that someday Jesus is coming back and that he will complete the work that he started so long ago. And so, uh, as I mentioned, God was up to something new and the lessons that he provided in the early chapter of Matthew's gospel are a beginner's guide of sorts. And we need that. We need that beginner's guide still because uh, even in the Gospels, to the disciples who he was with real time for like three years, uh, even at the end of their time, you know, we see in Acts that as Jesus is leaving, he's ascended into heaven, they're still kind of not too sure what the kingdom is. Huh? The kingdom. I mean, Jesus is still teaching on it. And so it's kind of, I mean, safe to say that we're going to feel a little fuzzy on that too. In fact, Jesus was like, listen, I can't teach you any more about this. I have to go away so that I can send the Holy Spirit to you. He's going to coach and guide and lead. And that's still the case for us today. And so uh, our reading this morning that we did just a minute ago is from a section called the Beatitudes. And that list of blessed are those who he kind of repeats all these different categories Um, That was crafted by Jesus for easy memorization. It would have been crafted by Jesus for kind of maximum impact. And, um, you know, my invitation to you over the last few weeks has just been to keep reading the Beatitudes. Keep going through that over and over and over again. And then, you know, keep going. Read the rest of Matthew chapter 5. The next day, read Matthew chapter 6. The next day, read Matthew chapter 7. I mean, that's kind of, uh, the, those are the chapters that apply to this message that Jesus gave called the Sermon on the Mount. So, as I mentioned earlier, my response to the question when I, when I sat there and just listened to that read for me was, how does it feel to be especially noticed by the Lord? And, honestly, my first thought was, It's incredible. I can't believe God notices me. And uh, Pastor Daryl Johnson says, the Beatitudes, when we read these and try and understand them, the Beatitudes must first be heard as grace or we're going to miss the point. They're not first of all about what we should be doing. Hey, you should be mournful. Hey, you should be pure in heart. Hey, you should be persecuted. No, this is about what God is already doing. That's what we hear first. 
It's in a very prophetic tradition of the Old Testament. It's that if you're stuck here, you're blessed because God is going to come and deliver and rescue and save you. And so that's how we, we orient ourselves as we hear these blessings of Jesus. Uh, he simply wants to bless broken people. And over the years, so many people have been encouraged, they've been inspired by Jesus here. But there's many others of us who've kind of really struggled to make sense of this. And often it's because of that starting place. We're hearing this as something that we should do. This is a person that we should become if we're not, rather than this is already what God is doing among people here on earth. Um, There's a book, The Divine Conspiracy. It's kind of old now. I think, man, it's like 20, 25 years it was written ago, or it was that far back it was written. It's by Dallas Willard, but it's really a classic. Uh, If you're up for a I actually have it on Audible because it's easier for me to listen to it. Um, when I read it, I get stuck up wanting to look, you know, I mean, there's, it's deep, okay? When I listen to it, I do better. Uh, but the divine conspiracy is also really helpful. And in the chapter that, that um, Dallas Willard talks about the Beatitudes, his, he comments that misunderstandings of Jesus' message have led, a lot, had led to a lot of pain, a lot of confusion over the years. And he recalls a conversation with this mom who, uh, after he had spoken on the Beatitudes once, uh, this mother had come up to him and uh, wanted to talk. And she said her son no longer considered himself a Christian. He actually stopped attending church precisely because of the Beatitudes. And as an adult, he had, he had entered the military. He'd always been, in her words, like he'd always been a really strong really intelligent, uh, highly motivated uh, person. He'd made the military his profession. And all along, uh, the ideal Christian had been painted as this poor, weak, and mild person. And he finally said, that's just not me. I'll never be like that. And so he just decided, I'm going to stop trying and move on to something else. I mean, that's a tragedy. That's not the message of Jesus here. Like, hey, here's, you know, here's the bar. You've got to jump up this high. Or, I mean, you could look at it the other way. You've got to, like, descend this low, right, to be poor, meek, and mild. And maybe that resonates with you. You know, you find yourself saying, I don't know if I could ever be like that, Jesus, or if I'd ever want to be like that. And so you end up feeling guilty that you're not quite measuring up. Well, a helpful starting point is just to consider Jesus' context. In his day, people wanted to live the good life, just as they want to live that today. But what is the good life? How do we get there? That's what Jesus is teaching about right here, the good life. It's what Jesus calls good news. And at the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, and we find this in Luke chapter uh, 4. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so you start to to hear different themes resonate. Jesus says, this is what I'm about. This is what my ministry is about. And then when you fast forward to the Beatitudes and you hear him saying, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who mourn, who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
were pure in heart. I mean, he goes on. You, you, can see the, you can hear those echoes right here. In paraphrasing Jesus, he's saying, take a look at God. His reign is breaking into our broken world. The kingdom of heaven is here. This is the life you want. And as evidence, over and over, if you read the Gospels, you see um, passages like this one that I'm going to point out to you. This happens immediately before the Beatitudes. It says, Jesus began to heal every disease and sickness among the people. Uh, this is Matthew 4, 24 through 5. It says, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. And so he was gaining this large following. People were finding out about Jesus. And maybe they wanted to follow him for not the best reasons. Maybe it was for the health care program. I don't know. Maybe it was for the free meal that he provided. I mean, at some point you see Jesus, he's actually like trying to, to it's like, He's trying to keep people from following him, right? Well, okay, well, this is what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to eat my body and drink my blood. How's that? I think I'm out, Jesus. I'm not a cannibal, right? I mean, all along, people are gathering to follow Jesus, kind of sorting things out, but there are always people who are like, I want that. And they follow. And so Jesus' contemporaries would have looked at this ragtag group of people probably in the same way we would have looked at them. They would have been a rough crowd to say the least. These are people who don't look that financially successful. These are people who uh, made some poor life choices probably. Some of these folks are dealing with mental illness, that's obvious. Others uh, with hard to treat medical conditions. It's a crowd of people that uh, Jesus' contemporaries would have thought this, but most people throughout history, even us today, we would have looked at that crowd and said, well, that's kind of the crowd that's been cursed or passed over or flat out just washed up, sometimes because they screwed up. And yet in Jesus, they found something new. They found hope, hope for the good life. And so people just line up, living in the kingdom, the life Life and the life of God, that would be a good life. But they wondered, just like us today, what is that good life? I've been chasing after what I thought was the good life my whole life, and I just don't seem like I can get there, or I seem like I missed it. Maybe God passed me over. And so Jesus speaks to people just like you and me, and he says, you want to know what God looks at? Want to know that God says you're blessed? You'll live the good life? To those of you who are poor in spirit, who mourn, who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the people who live the good life, the blessed ones are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, even those who are persecuted because of righteousness, because of me. And so Jesus is completely redefining who is blessed. And maybe you and I can relate. You know, every time I stand in line at the grocery store, it's impossible not to just start looking at the magazines there, right? And I, I know that no one else, you're just looking at your phone, maybe. But if you've got nothing else to do, you're looking at these magazines. And um, I'm always reminded how our society measures success and happiness. I'm always reminded, I stand in the grocery store, 
how our society considers or who our society considers blessed. You know, maybe if I could just look younger. Maybe if I could lose some weight, add some muscle. Maybe if I dressed better. And I don't know, maybe if I was able to buy a winery in Napa. That would be the good life, wouldn't it? Amen. I mean, that's what it takes. How do I measure up? I don't measure up. But maybe if I could just get there, I would feel blessed. I would be blessed. And most importantly, I would be seen as blessed by everyone else too. But is that really the good life? Is that how it's done? Is that a life worth living? I mean, all it takes is a few failed marriages, strangers raising your kids, a lot of plastic surgery, a therapist on speed, bo- speed dial. I mean, right? And these are all, there's a, there's, a, there's a cost to pay for this good life too. I'm not sure I want to pay it. But then why am I, why are so many of us enamored with that version of the good life? I don't know. So with the Beatitudes, Jesus isn't telling people how to live the blessed life. You know, it's by becoming poor, sad, weak, and miserable. The how to live the good life is found in Jesus. The blessed life begins when you put your faith in him. The blessed life begins when you start to follow a savior who's risen. And you learn how to hear his voice and do what he says. You can experience a growing sense of hope and purpose, and peace, and joy. It flows when you are abiding and resting and connected to him and into your life each and every day. It's resting in God's presence. And so your life begins to change. It starts to look different. You start to taste life and the life of God, the good life, the blessed life. When you start, when you stop, you know, trying to live the how that the rest of the world, and and instead look to who. Who provides that life to us? It's the Lord. And Jesus' Beatitudes are also describing who, the people who live the good life, the blessed life. They look a lot different than you'd expect. They're people who are spiritually bankrupt, poor in spirit, people who feel like they're zeros on the spiritual scale. God, I need you. I recognize that you've come near. The people who live the good life will passionately grieve. They'll let their guard down. They'll mourn over all that's broken in their life, but also in the lives around them. The blessed people, the, good, the people living the good life are those who are strong enough to be gentle and humble. They're the meek They understand life isn't there for the taking. It's a gift that's given to us. And as we're going to explore today, the good life are lived by the people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The word is literally stuffed, like the feeling you have after Thanksgiving. So a few years ago, a friend of mine told me about a new diet plan he had started, and for a little context... My friend lives in Southern California, which is important because everybody's on a diet there. And if you know what I mean, if you know, if you know what I mean, you know what I mean. And, um, it, you know, and he's been through so many of them. It's just kind of cycles. Like there's the all protein diets. There's been many versions of those. I like to call them the all bacon. 
or the only barbecue diet, I could get on board with that, okay? I, that, I like the way that one sounds. And, um, and, and then there's all these other ones. There's paleo, there's the whole 30 whole foods thing. I mean, there's lots of juice cleanses that are you know, mixed in between there. Uh, Gluten-free for weight loss. And then came along intermittent fasting. God bless people, right? It's like caveman used to do this. Well, we never used to get three square meals a day, so I'm just going to cut a couple out randomly here and there. I call that diet, intermittent and fasting, I call that the grad school diet, okay? Because when I was in grad school, I didn't have enough money to buy three square meals a day. I guess I, I didn't even know I was on the cutting edge of intermittent fasting. <laughs> but I bring that up because if you've ever missed a meal, ever, you know what it's like to be hungry or to have that hunger last a little longer than you like. But if you've ever gone hungry for any length of time, it could have been purposeful, like you were purposely trying to fast, but even more so, maybe it wasn't on purpose. You didn't know where the next meal was going to come. You know it's not only uncomfortable. You know how it takes over your thoughts. Have you ever been that hungry? Where you're just trying to shut the door on that feeling, that thought about the next meal, and you don't have any control over it because you don't know where the next one's coming from? That's kind of what Jesus is talking about here. It's taken over your thoughts. Righteousness. Righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for... Righteousness? Okay, who cares about righteousness, Jesus? Apparently he does. But I'm here to say this morning that you do too. Lots of us care about righteousness. In fact, I would say maybe all of us care about righteousness. Most people want to do what's right and good or at least be seen as a person who's doing right. You know, all you have to do is take a look at social media and how right is defined. All you have to do is take a look at your neighborhood. I mean, if you live in a neighborhood with, uh, it's got an HOA with CCRs, I mean, people care about seeing, being seen as someone who's doing what's right. Marvel movies. I'm continually astounded by how many Marvel whatever are produced with the theme of rightness weaved somewhere into their storyline. We care about righteousness, at least in the sense of our behavior and how we treat others. We just don't agree on what shape it takes or what it looks like in a given situation. And that's really the problem. In our society, who decides what's right? The internet, amen? <laughs> but no, really. In our society, who decides what's right? It's, it's you. It's me. Individuals decide what's right. But righteousness that an individual possesses is self-righteousness. The last time I checked, we don't generally like people we would describe as self-righteous, do we? Neither does Jesus. Neither does God. In fact, the gospel itself is opposed to self-righteousness. 
So when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's not saying, blessed are all of you who are passionate, pompous, and self-righteous, people who wallow in your own great choices. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, hey, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for this really ascetic and hard-to-live lifestyle, full of self-denial. You are tough. Good for you. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's talking about the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God that only comes from God that's expressed through his people towards others. That's the kind of righteousness Jesus is talking about here. He stands in a long tradition of prophets um, who care about how God's people are treating others. In fact, Jesus cares about righteousness so much, he even mentions it twice right here at the start of the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes. I mean, next to the kingdom, Jesus talks about righteousness the most. Jesus cares about righteousness. Why? Because our righteousness, or lack of it, impacts our relationships. It impacts our community. And the first that it impacts is our relationship with God. And out of that flows everything else, a.k.a. our relationships with one another, our relationships with our world. By the time that Jesus came along, God's people, the Pharisees, the scribes, the rabbis, they had turned righteousness into a distinctly personal kind of thing. They said each person needed to conform their life, their actions to the letter of the law or the Torah, as it's called. And if you did so, you were going to be right, at least before the law. You would be righteous. So in that understanding, righteousness is a matter of individual performance. Do you see the similarity here between Jesus' time and our own? It's just a different version of self-righteousness. Uh, maybe it wasn't defined by them, but it was still just theirs. This is something that I'm going to go get, I'm going to go do, and now I'm righteous. Yay, God loves me. But no one else does. It's just the same thing. It's, it's just wearing different clothes. It puts you as the person in the driver's seat. Just follow all the rules. Go through the motions. God will smile on you. You will be blessed. Jesus railed against this, didn't he? He called the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, he called them hypocrites. He called them whitewashed tombs. Maybe one of my favorite and most feared phrases. It means that they might look like good people on the outside, but in reality, their soul was more like a corpse. Yikes. I do not want to be a whitewashed tomb. That is not the religion of God. You see, the people of Jesus' time had conformed the finer points of the law. They'd missed the whole point of it. They'd, they'd focused on the finer points and missed the bigger picture. The bigger picture, love God, love your neighbor. That's righteousness. You know, a person like this, who first loves the Lord and then learns to with the Lord's power to love and live that out in everyday life, a person like that shows fruit of it in their everyday interactions just with others. Because righteousness isn't something that we attain, that we grab onto, that we conform to. Righteousness comes from outside of us. It's something that God gives us. 
And even in the Old Testament, it was this way. Isaiah 51, verse 5. My righteousness, this is God talking, draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way and my arm will bring justice to the nations. Psalm 71, the Psalms have lots about righteousness in them. Uh, Verse 2, in your righteousness, this is the psalmist talking to the Lord, pleading to God, rescue and deliver me, turn your ear to me and save me. Just a couple of examples here. Psalm 143, Lord, hear my prayer, listen to my cry for mercy in your faithfulness and righteousness, come to my relief. And this is what God was doing in Jesus. We know that in Jesus, his death would become an atonement for our lack of righteousness. Oh, you lack righteousness? God says, here you go. You can have it through me. You can have it when you surrender to me, when you submit to me, when you start to follow me, when you lean into me. That's where the righteousness is found. And through that connection, God starts a transformation. But that's not all there is to it. It's not just all about, hey, here's our righteousness up there. Great, God has made me righteous. I'm saved. And now I will just go on cruise control until he comes again. No, righteousness is also something that we do. It flows out of us. Righteousness, as Jesus understood, is not a matter of our actions um, meeting some set of standards, but it's our actions, our behavior, which is keeping with the two-way relationship between God and human beings. That's the definition of the New International Dictionary of New Testament theology. It's not about legal standards and conforming to those, but our behavior, which is in keeping with the two-way relationship between God and human beings. It means that God brings us righteousness as part of our salvation and we participate in that deliverance that he provides by doing righteousness in our relationships with one another. Also known as love God and love your neighbor. So all week long, more than just a week, I've known about this message that's coming up. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. And maybe out of all of the Beatitudes, this was the one that I thought, what am I going to say about that? And so I kept reading and reading and reading and reading. And it turns out there is a lot to learn about righteousness in the Bible. And then I started to get nervous. Like, oh my goodness, how do I put this into a message that fits into, you know, a time frame that people won't fall asleep in? And actually, that they'll, at the end of this, this is something that they'll want to do. All week long, I've been thinking about that. And what occurred to me was that part about, you know, we actually do care about this. I mean, when you look at in the world around us, especially the last couple of years, what have most of the protests been about? And maybe I can't say most of There's been a lot of protests related to this idea of righteousness. Because in Greek, the word for righteousness, you could translate it, same thing. It means justice. 
rightness and like the English phrase, whatever is good, uh, whatever is right and just. The Hebrew mindset of this, the Greek mindset is whatever is right is just. Whatever is just is right. You see, we care about righteousness. We care about justice. When we look around the world around us, we're like, oh man, that's an injustice. That's wrong. Who do you think put that there in us? Oh, we just discovered this because we're sociologically advanced as a species. No, God put that there. Every time we feel like an injustice is committed against us, that's something of the image of God saying, hey, that's not right. That's wrong. Or when we see that happening in others. And so as Christians, we kind of need to sharpen our pencil on what exactly does righteousness, justice mean? Because every time it kind of comes up in a church context, it comes up as social justice. And whenever we talk about social justice, people start to get twitchy. Man, do I know it as a pastor because they talk to me. Because in our world, every time social justice comes up, we start to talk about politics. And it makes me want to cry. When has government ever fixed anything? But we need a government. We need to be involved in those decisions. But we don't need to make them in the place of God. Because God has a plan. God does have standards. We don't live up to them. That's why we need God to change us. So that through that change, through his righteousness, we start to live and reflect the way that he is. You know, we're the image, we're the broken image of him. Let's polish that image up so that other people can see it. And so Christians are upset by injustice. They're upset by poverty and racism. They're upset by, you know, court systems that don't seem to be functioning and that aren't providing to they're they're upset by things that happen around our globe not because of our political stance but because of what god is doing in us like that is a reflection of that is an injustice that is wrong and and we're not just going to sit idly by well i'm just going to wait for heaven to show up because i got my personal righteousness set couldn't be any further from the mark but I admit, there are a lot of landmines that we potentially step on whenever we step into that arena as followers of Jesus. But just because of that doesn't mean that we should avoid it and take our toys and go home or start visiting or start attending another church where they don't ever talk about social justice, just talk about being right with God. If you read the Old Testament, especially the, the prophets, over and over and over and over again, God is telling his people, you don't get it. You don't get it. Look at, read Amos. It's like, you're so wealthy and so affluent, and yet there are so many poor and impoverished among you, and you don't care. You don't know God. Over and over and over again, this is a theme in the Old Testament. And the New Testament writers pick up on it too. The New Testament writers add this whole dimension of 
of God's righteousness. I mean, you read Paul, he's talking about righteousness over and over again and the, and the grace. This isn't something you earn. This isn't something that you, you check off all the boxes and you stand before God and you say, see, I'm righteous. I did all this stuff. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Your righteousness is a gift from the Lord. It comes through his grace. And because of that, it should change who you are and how you interact with others in your society. And so when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's likely talking to a group of people who are literally hungering and thirsting. Not everyone, but I bet there were some there present. And they know exactly what the, when that overtakes your mind, that's all you can think about. And Jesus is partly saying, hey, wouldn't it be great if if a world existed where people didn't go hungry, where you were reconciled to a community that loved and cared and reflect God's care towards you, let's hunger for that. Because in God's economy, in God's world, those are the people who will be filled. Those are the ones who will be stuffed. Those are the people who are blessed in God's eyes, not left out. They're blessed. And the quicker that we as Jesus's followers can become like that too, or can recognize the, the God's action and care and love in our world and say, God, open my eyes to this. How, how do you want how do I live out righteousness? How do I do that, God? Because I'm blinded by my own culture. It becomes this self-righteous thing. Change that in me. I want to hunger. I want to be that kind of person. Jesus says, those are the people who are blessed. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we long... We long for you. We long for you to fix this broken world. But we also know that you've, you've invited us into that process. You start with us. We can discover a new life in you because of your death and your resurrection, because we surrender our own stubborn will, Lord, for yours. And we long to do what's right in our relationships with others, Lord. Whenever our relationship is, is broken, man, it weighs on us. That's a reflection of you. We pray that you would enter into those and bring healing. We pray that you would enter into those, Lord, and, and help us to acknowledge our own part in those broken relationships. Help us to make steps but we also long to see you set this broken world straight once again. We also long for you to be reflected in the way that we go about business in our everyday life and the way that we treat others. Help us to hunger and to thirst for your righteousness, Lord. That's my prayer. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.